Alrighty. So last week we, we looked at um, four truths about the kingdom of God, right? And I'm just going to run through these and then I'm going to kind of uh, unpack the last two and then get into today, okay? So last week we looked at four, four truths and a couple of statements that Jesus made, all right? Uh, we, we, we talked about the fact that the kingdom of God is God's supreme power and rule in the earth and in our lives, right? And Jesus makes this astounding statement. He says God's supreme power actually resides on the inside of each one of us. It is within you. You already possess it. You are walking. You're a walking powerhouse, we say, right? And then we say the kingdom of God has keys. Okay, we, we looked at the fact that Jesus said that whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven, and whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven. And we kind of unpacked that statement he made. And then we kind of dwelt on these two statements he makes in the book of John, chapter number three. Okay, Jesus says you cannot see the kingdom of God unless you have been born again. And we talked about the fact that being born again is a spiritual rebirth. All right? Jesus said you cannot see the kingdom of God, meaning you cannot perceive it. You cannot recognize it. You cannot have an awareness unless there is this spiritual rebirth that has happened. But in the same breath, he makes this other statement and says you cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you have also been born again. And we talked about entering, meaning to arise and to come into. In other words, to live in the reality of the perception of the kingdom of God. All right? So we say there are people that see the kingdom of God, but some people never enter the kingdom of God. They never enter into the reality of all that Jesus promised. And we say one of the key ways you enter into this new reality called the kingdom of God is through what Paul said in the book of Acts chapter number 14, verse 21. He said, we must suffer many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Okay? You can see the kingdom of God, but you don't get to live in the reality unless you have overcome some things in your life. You, you can know that God heals, but unless you have experienced God's healing, what you know will just remain that. It will just be knowledge. You're not living in the reality of that kingdom. So we say trials and tribulations are blessings from the Lord because they graduate us from one level of faith to another, from one level of grace to another. We don't just want to see the kingdom. We also want to enter the kingdom. All right? And last week I said, listen, it's about slaying dragons and taking names. And I had my friend Dan come up to me and say, Pastor, what do you mean taking names? I'm like, oh, girlfriend, let me tell you. <laughs> All right? But, and just in case somebody was wondering, what does it mean you take names? Basically, it's a checkoff list. That you're, okay, that's defeated. That's gone. That's gone. You're taking names. You're slaying dragons and taking names. But that is how you graduate. That's how you enter the kingdom of God. Stop, so stop cursing your troubles and hardships. Because they are there to build you up. 
right? And I gave you the scripture in the book of Judges that there were certain nations that the Lord left in the land to test those Israelites who had never experienced warfare in Canaan. God deliberately left some enemies so that people could learn how to fight and win. God doesn't defeat every enemy because some enemies are there to help you fight and win, to teach you how to fight and win, okay? Entering the kingdom of God. All right. Now today, I want to talk about the kingdom of God manifested, all right? Campbell, that's great. I, the concepts of the kingdom are great. And some of you are just like, it's over my head. What does that even mean? What does it mean for this kingdom that Jesus preaches to become a reality in my life? How does it become manifest? Okay? Let's turn our Bibles to the book of Luke, chapter number 24. All righty. Here's what the Bible says. And now I will send the Holy Spirit, just as my father promised. But stay here in the city until the Holy Spirit comes and fills you with power from heaven. Here's the backstory. I want you to imagine this. For three and a half years, Jesus spends day and night with 12 men. Day and night, they see him. They hear him. Okay? He teaches them. Guys, this is how you love. Guys, this is actually how you heal. And he doesn't just tell them, but he also challenges them to go out and do the same things. So he says, he sent them one time to say, I want you to go to all the cities, all the villages around us, and I want you, every place where you go, I want you to lay hands on the sick, I want you to heal the lepers, I want you to do these great supernatural things in my name. And they did. And in Luke chapter 10, they come back excited. They say, Jesus, we want you to know that wherever we went, wherever we laid hands on the sick, they recovered. Lepers were healed. Those who had been demon-possessed were freed by God. All right? They tell him all these things. And Jesus says, yeah, all authority and on, heaven, on earth and in heaven has been given to me. Right? I saw Satan fall like lightning from the sky. I give you authority to trample over serpents and scorpions and to overcome every power of the enemy. He tells them that. For three and a half years, they hear, they practice, they see with their very eyes. But at the end, when Jesus is about to leave, he tells them this. I don't want you to do anything until you receive power from heaven. I don't want you to do anything until you receive power from heaven. Why would he do that? He told them, listen, I have been with you. In other words, you have been living in the presence of God's supernatural power for the last three and a half years. I have been around you. The power that created the universe has been living with you. But now I'm about to leave, leave this place. Wait until power from heaven. This same power that brought the universe into being. The same power that brought me back to life. I want this power not to be around you, but to be in you. Okay? So he says, I want you to wait. I don't want you to do anything until this power comes and be in you. Everybody follow? Okay. So, 
Then he made another statement, kind of the same statement in Acts chapter 1, verse 6 to 8. I want us to turn there. Follow me here for a second. I'm, I'm kind of building a foundation, and we're going to tie it up in a small ball. Uh, nice ball, and, you know, hold hands and sing kumbaya and the whole thing. Acts 1, verse 6 to 8. Here's what the Bible says. Are you there? So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept, they kept asking him. This is before he leaves, right? He says, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? Do you hear what I say? Not your kingdom, but our kingdom. And Jesus says, he replied, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know. In other words, Jesus is affirming that there's going to be a time when Israel will be restored to the nation that God called it to be. Okay? But this wasn't the time. Then Jesus concludes and he says this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere in, Jeru in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Jesus says you will receive power. That word power is dunamis. It's just a Greek word called dunamis. That's where we get the word dynamite. So I want you to think about this. Jesus is saying, you're going to receive explosive power. Explosive ability. Explosive strength. And you will be my witnesses. You see, a witness is not somebody who heard something from some ha 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 ha. Right? If you say you're a witness, you're saying, I saw it. I saw it with my very eyes. I experienced it. I was there. That's what witnesses do, right? They know, they have personal experience with what is happening. So Jesus said, listen, when you receive this explosive power and ability, you will finally be people who are going to tell others what you have witnessed. You're going to say to them, oh, you think the lame can't walk? I'm about to show you. You're going to land it there, all right? Some of you just like, all right. Okay, you're going to land today. I'm going to show you what God does. So when Peter and John go into the temple, right, they see a lame person sitting there. They don't go and say, you know, there used to be this Jesus who used to walk around here and he used to heal the sick. Um, yeah, end of story. No, they say to him, silver and gold we do not have. I don't have $100 right now, but listen, what I, want, what I have I want to give you. The explosive power in me. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Power. Right? The power was for three things. There are myriad of things, but I want us to focus on three things. Okay? The power was to produce supernatural miracles. That's what the power was for. The first thing. We are living now in a world where people do not believe really in the supernatural. Okay? People just think it's a fabrication of Hollywood and Jesus doesn't do what, what he used to do in the Bible. There are great stories in the Bible, right? Wow, that is awesome. That's, just, that's such a great story. But people don't actually believe that that happens. And I believe that the reason they don't believe it's because the followers of Jesus are not being good witnesses. 
And we are not being good witnesses because we have not seen or heard with our very own eyes or experienced it. Therefore, we cannot be effective witnesses. Right? The only way to be an effective witness is to actually be a practitioner of the gospel of Jesus. How would you feel when you walked into, uh, you know, Keith had sur- knee surgery a few weeks ago. A couple months, right? Come on, weeks ago. Now, imagine if Keith walked in there and he said, uh, you know, well, the surgeon comes in and says, well, Keith, um, the anesthesiologist is about to come and give you laughing gas or whatever they no. He's going to put you under, okay? <laughs> We're going to give you localized anesthesia. And I just want you to know that I have read a lot about this. I have read a lot. And in fact, the latest research shows that if I make a good incision, like right here to there, it's going to be a great surgery. In fact, in... Um, Stevenson's latest research at the Mayo Clinic, it shows that this actually has a very high rate of success. I just wanted you to know that. I've never done it before, but um, yeah. Confidence, right? A bad kid is saying, Doc, I trust you. Just go ahead. No, that doesn't instill. But most of us do that. Oh, I got a migraine headache today. Can somebody please pray for me? Well, I've heard it said that Jesus used to do such kind of things. In fact, the Bible says in the book of Matthew, chapter that this is a possibility. I've never seen it happen, but it's a possibility. Amen. And you walk away. Oh, yeah, but when we come on Sundays, we want to do gymnastics and want to hang off chandeliers, want to run around the building and jump off cliffs and whatever. Yeah, but you can't heal a migraine headache. Right? We are not practitioners of the gospel of Jesus. Like today, when we came in, uh, I was invited to pray for my friend back there. And Brian, I love Brian. Brian is a very practical guy. And he told a story, uh, we were playing, praying for Lars, and he tells Lars a story about this one guy who had knee problems and how God healed him and all that kind of stuff. And it was like a minute, and he said, okay, pastor, you get the one knee, I get the other knee, let's pray. It took us a few seconds to pray for Lars, right? And we're believing that God will heal him. What were we doing? We're putting the gospel of Jesus into practice. The next time somebody says, I want you to pray for me, you know, can you pray for me? I'm going through this. Don't wait until you get home. Just stop there and say, listen, can we just take a second and pray right now? And you do it. The way I learned to pray for sick people was because my parents did it to us. We were the guinea pigs. All right, all right, daddy, mommy, I got a headache. They're like, okay, you're about to take some painkiller, but before we do that, sit over here. And they lay hands on you and they just pray and pray and pray and pray and pray and believe God. You know, you're healed, right? But that's how we learn that supernatural power Jesus was talking about. Yes, it came like. Uh, tongues of fire on people's heads. They began to speak with other tongues, but it did not end there. It enabled, listen, you go and read this. In Acts chapter number five, right? People used to line up the street 
so that the shadow of Peter would fall on them and be healed. Can you just imagine that? Driving to work, right? People are standing by their gates. They say, ooh, Harrison is about to come this way today. I know he's living in the power of God. And the moment he drives that big white van past me, I believe I'm going to get healed, right? And Harrison drives, zoom, and people just start getting healed. Oh, I can walk. I can see. Can you imagine that? Right? And some of you are like, is there an app for that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? It's an application of the word of God in your life. There's an app for that. Okay? But listen, that's what we are for. I don't want to hear anybody say, can you pray for me? And nobody says, let's do it now. Okay? And listen, you don't even have to feel like, ooh, ooh, something is happening. No. Think about this for a minute. When Jesus healed the sick, he didn't say, well, I just want to invite Campbell, Amanda, Lou, Harrison, just come up. I just want you to play that song for me. Hallelujah. We start playing it. And Jesus says, I feel something. Mm, I can feel it. You're about to get healed. <laughs> right? No. Jesus, it was so natural for him. I know, right? He sees the sick and he says what? Rise up. Be healed. A dead person, everybody get out of the room because you are now giving me bad vibe. Right? Some of you are not believing that this person will come back to life. And Jesus stands there and the little girl comes back to life. He didn't do all this spiritual gymnastics we want to create now in the Pentecostal movement. Oh my gosh, oh fly this, fly that. Now, chill. Just pray. God is the one who heals. Amen. Amen? Okay, let me get off that soapbox. That's what the first thing, the power of God enables you to live a supernatural life. Perform supernatural things. Okay? Secondly, the power of God enables you to live in a radical way. My father always used to say, we charismatics have a problem. We want somebody to touch us, we feel goosebumps, or we even go to the floor under the power of God, but still get up and still live like a devil. If the very power of that created the universe has touched your life, there is nothing you can do but change. Right? What happened to Saul? He was going to Damascus, and he has one encounter with Jesus. Now, the backstory of Saul's life is this. He was a great, educated, intelligent man that did not believe in this Jesus. In fact, he took it a step further and became a terrorist. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Radical Jewish terrorist. That's what he was. All right? And he started killing anybody that believed in the name of Jesus. His first victim was a guy by the name of Stephen. Stephen. You know what Stephen did in the church? He served tables. He was a waiter at the food pantry, at the soup kitchen. But the power of God was in that waiter. That everywhere he went, he would tell people about this Jesus, and people would begin following Jesus. But Stephen was stoned to death with Saul standing there watching him die. But Saul meets Jesus one time. 
a light from heaven shines, gets him to the ground, and the voice says, so why are you persecuting me? And he says, who in the world is you? And then Jesus says, I am Jesus, the one you're persecuting. Guess what? Saul's life from that day changed. In other words, you cannot encounter the power of Jesus and still remain the same. Let me put it another way. I believe in the simple stuff, okay? I believe, like, yeah, the difficult stuff too, like blind eyes can open. I believe that. And some of you believe it, but you don't just believe that God can help you with the little struggle you're having right now. And I don't know what that struggle is. It might be unforgiveness. It might be oppression. It might be depression. Whatever that struggle is, if you believe that the Jesus of the Bible resurrects the dead, what is your little problem to him? Right? Which is easier, to get rid of your depression or to raise the dead? Hello. I'm thinking raising the dead is pretty <laughs> up here. Hello. <laughs> right? But when you encounter Jesus, you begin to live differently. There is a radical change that happens in you. You are no longer the person who used to do those bad things. You become the person who has encountered Jesus. If Jesus was able to turn a terrorist around and cause him to be a man who has written half the New Testament of the Bible today, he can certainly change you. And the cool thing is this. Jesus says, I did not come into the world to condemn the world, but I came to save the world. John 3, 17. Right? So Jesus is not sitting up in heaven with a big broomstick and a big long sheet of paper waiting, you to, waiting for you to mess up. Oh, you done messed up today. Look at you, Brian. You messed up. Oh, Brian, you messed Dude, re- dude. No, Jesus is not sitting there doing that. Right? Jesus is saying, Brian, I know you messed up. I want you to know I forgive you. There's still time for you to actually experience new birth in me. All you have to do is what? Surrender to me, and I'll do the rest, and I'll radically change your life. My dad was a chain smoker. My dad was a heavy drinker, and he was a good Catholic. Great combination. The day he met Jesus was through a workmate at, church, at work. That person told him about Jesus, and he got saved that day. And my dad, from that day onwards, stopped drinking, stopped smoking. Like that. The power of God changed his life in a very radical way. And for the early church, they did not just just live in a radical way. They did crazy things. Like uh, they took care of each other. Right? They'll say, okay, uh, Campbell has got $100,000 in debt. He got himself into that trouble. He messed up. Um, but we need to deal with it. We need to help him because we're about to repossess his BMW. Okay? <laughs> the Reaper man on his way to come and get his BMW. And we need to do something about that because Jesus loves BMWs. He created BMWs and God knows he created Apple. But we need to do something for Campbell. Right? Then, 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 then Melody would come up and say, you know what? I think we can do this. Um, I sold 10 books yesterday. I'll hook him up. Yeah. No, 
no, no, but here's the thing. Oh, 10 books. Like, okay, great. Okay, good. Paul comes up and said, cut, cut up a few trees yesterday, and I think we can sell that as firewood and raise a bit of money for Campbell. And everybody starts chipping in, chipping in, chipping in, chipping in, chipping in. Before you know it, my, my $100,000 is paid off. I get to keep my BMW, and you get to praise Jesus as I drive it. <laughs> right? <laughs> but all jokes aside, right? In, in, in Acts chapter 2, this is something that happens, actually. This is what they do. The Bible says, those who had property, they brought it to the, they sold their property and brought the money to the apostles. Okay, so that everybody in their midst could actually have enough. And the Bible says no one among them was with need. Now, don't get me wrong. Yes, we keep on reading and we find Christians sold part of their property to give to the, to give to the church and advancement of the gospel. It's not like we are saying, oh yeah, now everybody go sell, bring me your mortgage, go sell your... No, what the Bible is trying to illustrate here is that people were in tune with each other's needs to the point that they were willing to sacrifice for each other. It was a radical shift in how people did things. Amen. Can you live radically for Jesus? Have you experienced his power to the extent that it will cause you to live in a radical way? Amen. All right, let's close with this. Acts chapter number 6. Acts chapter number 6, and we're going to close. That means 10 minutes from now for you that are new to church. That's what pastors do, you know. I'm about to close. 30 minutes later, they're still talking. I'm about to close. Right. All right. Acts chapter number six. So, first of all, the power that allows you to live or enables you to live a supernatural life, right? Secondly, the power of God enables you to live a radical life for Jesus. The third thing is this Acts chapter number one, or chapter number six, verse one, it says this. But as the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. The Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers, saying their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve called a meeting of all the believers. They said, we apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. So brothers, select seven men who are well-respected and full of the spirit and wisdom. We will give them this responsibility. Then we apostles can spend our time in prayer and teaching the word. Verse 5. Everyone liked this idea and they chose the following. Stephen, remember that guy I talked about? A man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Do you hear that? Full of faith and explosive power from God. Called to run a food program. Wait on tables. Philip, Prochorus, uh, Nicanor, Timon, and... Paminus, and Nicholas of Antioch, an earlier convert to, Ju to the Jewish faith. These seven were, repre were presented to the apostles who prayed for them as they laid their hands on them. Okay, here's the third and last thing I want to talk about. The power of God enables you to correct injustice. The power of God enables you to correct injustice. There are over 27 million slaves in the world today. More than any time in history. 
And the biggest portion of the slave trade that is happening in the world is sex, sex slaves being sold all over the world. It's big. Now, you and I can sit and say, we, we, it's so far away from us, we're not going to do anything about it. But the fact of the matter is that it affects you. It affects your family. And here's how it affects you and your family. One of the biggest times this sex slavery actually comes to the forefront here in New York is in New York City during times of big festivities like New Year's Day. There are brothels running right now in New York City that have sex slaves all the way from Thailand. Oh, and by the way, these are not 18, 17-year-olds. These are 16, 15, 14, 12, 9-year-old girls and boys being traded as slaves all over the world. And even here in New York State. There's a reason the pornographic industry in the world is billions and billions of dollars. Those are young boys, young women that have fallen prey to sex slavery. Now you and I as the church can say that doesn't touch us. But it does. When 50% of professing followers of Jesus, men in the church struggle with porn. You know that's a problem. Yeah, so it affects your home. I have stopped living under the, the assumption that every young boy has not been exposed to pornography. And by the way, women, your numbers have gone up. They used to be in the 20s. You're right up close there with us in the 50s. It's a problem. It's an injustice that needs to be corrected. But what we cannot do is sweep it under the carpet and pretend like it does not affect us. Right? These guys saw an injustice. Widows, Greek widows were being overlooked. They could have turned a blind eye and just said, well, the majority of us are Jews. Right? No, but that changed. They said, you know what? We want you to pick seven men from among yourselves who are going to administer this, this program. The minority have to be looked after. Amen? And that's why for me, I've stopped saying a lot of things on Facebook. I have a lot to say. I can say a lot. But I have been watching, waiting, and praying, and watching the temperature of things happening in this country. And don't get me wrong, I know that there are people that fall on different political spectrum. But for me as a child of God, I have to ask myself, am I going to be my brother's keeper and follow the gospel of Jesus? Or am I just going to look that over and pretend it doesn't affect me? Right? There's so many injustices that are happening today. Whether that is violence towards cops, violence towards Jews, violence in the African American community, violence against refugees, or whatever. Porn, sex slavery, divorce.
so many things going on, and you and I, Jesus says, guess what? I've called you to be the salt of the earth. If America is rotting today, that just means one thing. My children who are called to be the salt of the earth have become useless to the preservation of the earth. My children who are called to be the light of the world have actually become darkness in the midst of darkness. I want you to try this when you go home one day, when you lose power in the house. Just turn on a flashlight and see what happens. It's, it's fascinating. You all of a sudden begin to see where you're going, right? That's what light does. It dispels darkness. And I don't know where God is calling you to confront injustice. And I don't know what kind of specific injustice God is calling you to challenge. But whatever that is, I want you to know that you cannot be a follower of Jesus and not confront that. Because by default, the power of Jesus which lives in you compels you to do something about what you see. And the only, the only reason you don't do anything about it is because you ignore it. Right? Okay, so the power of God enables you to live a supernatural life, to live radically and correct injustice. I guarantee you, if we become the church of Jesus Christ that does these three things, that manifests the kingdom of God in these three ways, people will be breaking down the doors to come and say, we want this Jesus. Amen? There's a reason prostitutes went to Jesus. There's a reason tax collectors, the mafia of the day, went to organized crime. This is what guys were organized crime. They ran to Jesus. Jacked up, messed up, they ran to Jesus. Not the church, not, not those religious stuff. Mm -hmm, yeah, no, Jesus. We want people to run to the church because the church is a reflection of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand up to the feet. Thank you.